Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Vanita Jones. I'm part of the teaching team for Women in the Word, and it is my great pleasure to be here today as we continue the tour through the tabernacle. You know, Lynn started this tour with us last week when she started in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and it's the smaller of the two rooms within the uh, inside of the tabernacle. It's the innermost part of the tabernacle, and it's the very place that God dwelled with his people, the Israelites on earth. And inside the Holy of Holies, Lynn told us about the Ark of the Covenant, and she said that it had, remember, it had the two golden cherubim, and they had their wings spread over the mercy seat. And inside it, there were three things. There was the Ten Commandments, there was this golden urn filled with manna and Aaron's staff that had blossomed almond blossoms and produced ripe almonds all inside the Ark of Covenant. And she mentioned that inside the holy place, the Holy of Holies, was what she called the Shekinah glory. And she said the Shekinah glory was the English translation of a Hebrew word that meant God's presence. So this innermost room of the tabernacle was completely and totally lit only by the presence of God. The Shekinah glory. There was nothing else in there to light this room. I can't even imagine how bright that little 15 by 15 foot room had to be with the glory of presence of God dwelling in this room. I can't even imagine that on the Day of Atonement, that one day a year, that when the high priest went in there, that he wasn't completely blinded by this light. In fact, why didn't he have to wear something like this? Do you remember these beauties? <laughs> Do you remember this? Just a few weeks ago, there were people on the internet looking for these like crazy people so they could watch the eclipse that was going to happen. Now, I have to tell you, I saw the eclipse here. I wasn't one of the lucky ones that got to go see it far away where it was the total eclipse. My son did, and he told me all about it. But I'll just be honest, I was a little bit underwhelmed. Weren't you? <laughs> I mean, I, I, of course, did not look on Amazon. I'm, this happens to me all the time. I was walking in Lowe's for something else and saw these and went, huh, what's that? Is this like a 3D movie? And I looked and went, Eclipse, when's that happening? Oh, that's next week. And there were four pair, and I thought, hey, I'll buy these just in case we get a chance to see it. And then I find out nobody can find them. I fell on these four in, in Lowe's. I had one for each one of us to watch the Eclipse that was... Very underwhelming. <laughs> I was so disappointed. But I did witness a total eclipse years ago. I was about seven years old. It was in, I was a little girl in Kansas, and I'll remember this day. It's one of those memories that I can just vividly see and remember. It was on March 7th. It was in 1970. It was a Saturday, and I was with my daddy at an auction for a local farm. And my brothers were with us, and we had driven out there that day, and I was so excited because there was going to be an eclipse, and I was going to see it. And my mother had warned my father, do not let the kids look at the sun. Do not let them look at that eclipse. And so all the way out there, that's all we heard. Do not look at the eclipse. What did you want to do? I want to look at the eclipse. <laughs> and we didn't have these. We didn't even have Amazon. And so what we had were these shoe boxes that my brothers made in science class with some very carefully placed pinholes so that we could see the eclipse. I'm shocked 
as shocked about the fact that I still have corneas <laughs> as I am that the high priest had corneas after it because my brothers are not scientific at all and they made my shoebox for me. <laughs> but I can remember, I vividly remember the sun beginning to go away as the moon moved in front of it and everything around you kind of went from all these bright crisp colors on this bright sunny day to just these shades of gray and this eerie feeling where you couldn't see color and you couldn't see shapes quite as well. It was quite scary. And in fact, I asked my daddy about this the other day. I was with him on Monday and I said, Dad, do you remember this? He says, honey, all I remember is you clung to me the entire time. I was scared. It was very scary for me. And I remember that. I hung on to him and I waited and then the, the moon started to move. And all of a sudden, the light started to come back up, and I could see the shapes again, and I could see the colors and the crisp and everything around me. You know, I remember how good that sun felt as it shined on me on that Kansas morning. It was beautiful. Light is so very important to us. Have you ever been walking through your house, heard a transformer bloom and everything, or boom, and it goes blank and black in your house? It's the same room you've lived in for years, but you're still going to break a toe. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You completely lose your orientation. You can't find anything. And then your eyes start to adjust and you think, is that a couch? I mean, it's been there forever. It happens. It, it's happened to me before I actually did break a toe doing this. So we move from this room. It's the Holy of Holies. It's quite possibly the brightest room that's ever been on earth. And we're going to go through this veil, and we're going to step into the next room, the holy place. And in the holy place, the bigger of the two rooms, we're going to find a couple things. There were two objects there. There were um, the two we studied today. There's actually another one, the altar of incense. We're going to look at that in a couple weeks. But this is the room where the priest would come in representing the Israelites... And they would worship God, they would seek God's guidance, and they would, work, they would fellowship with God inside the holy place. Uh, this week we focused, of course, on the table of showbread and the golden lampstand. And as we walked from the Holy of Holies and you looked in, you would have seen it. This was the table of showbread over here. And over here we would have had the golden lampstand directly across the room. Now, when I was preparing for this today, I couldn't um, think about which one should I start with. I mean, here's my dilemma. I was taught a long time ago, know your audience. It's a very important part of public speaking. And then you prepare accordingly. And I'm talking to a bunch of women in a room filled with women. So what do you do? Do you go with the table of showbread? I know how you ladies like carbs. Or do I start with the golden lampstand because I know how you ladies like shiny things? <laughs> so you see my dilemma? What do I do here? Do I start with carbs? Do I start with bread? I mean, honestly, this was like the perfect room for us. It, was, it could have been a woman's man cave. or as I heard it on a commercial recently. It could have been our she shed. It had everything we love right in this room. And so I had this dilemma. But then reason prevailed, and I thought... There was no light in this room, and without the golden lampstand, nothing else would have made sense or even been able to be used, so I decided to go against what was right next in line, and I decided to start with the golden lampstand first. I thought, that's going to capture their attention. These ladies love gold, and they love shiny things. 
You know, without the golden lampstand, these priests would have not been able to use this room the way it was intended. They would not, without this light that was shining in the room, not been able to worship God. They would not been able to seek his guidance. They would not been able to fellowship with him the way he intended for them to do. Everything he, God intended in this room depended on this light. Let's start off in Exodus 25, and I'm just going to read um, 31 through 40, and we're going to learn about the golden lampstand. It says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, and on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups, there made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be made of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make, ev make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see to it that you make them after the pattern for them, which is shown to you on the mountain. Did you notice the great detail that he gave on this lampstand? The first thing that stood out to me is this thing is going to be made of pure gold. Which, by the way, in the Bible, gold frequently is a symbol of deity. So that should be our first, our first clue of what's going on here. And it's to be crafted out of a solid piece of pure gold, one solid piece. Moses was instructed to use one talent of pure gold. Now, a talent of gold is about 75 pounds. And so, to give you a little perspective, this would be about the size of three gold bars. I'm sure you have those laying around everywhere. And if you stack three gold bars on top of themselves, it'd be about the size of a milk jug, a gallon milk jug. That's how much gold they had to start with. Now, this is the part that's going to blow your mind. Do you have any idea how much 75 pounds of gold is worth in today's market? It's worth $1,450,000. That lampstand value in, in materials alone is worth $1.5 million in today's market. And that wouldn't even include all the hours of the skilled labor that went into making it. This thing was a work of art. It was beautiful. Now, what is not mentioned are the dimensions. We have no idea how big, how wide, how tall, anything about that. And, and as, as you look, you see it nowhere. So when you look for pictures of the lampstand, which I look for you for today, if you'll show that, Mindy, I have no idea how big it is. There are like a thousand pictures of lampstands, and, and I had to just try to find the one that actually used the, the flowers and the blossoms on it, exactly how it was in the scripture, because many of the, the pictures don't do that. 
We may not know the dimensions, but what we do know about the lampstand was that it was designed with the central shaft that came straight up, and then they were to make six coming out shafts on each side, three on each side, so a total of six coming out from it, including the seven, seven with the middle one. And we read that Moses was instructed to use almond blossoms, calyxes, and buds in the lampstand's design, specifically four on the central shaft and three on each of the side shafts. Now, as much as I believe that God loves using his nature that he created in the design of things he makes, I think there's a whole lot more to it that he used almond blossoms and and calyxes and buds on this. If you remember, this is not the first time we see the almond blossoms mentioned. Lynn mentioned them last week when she talked about Aaron's staff found in the the, uh, Ark of the Covenant. And it said that it had, had sprouted and it had blossomed and given, produced ripe almonds. Ripe almonds. And it was on the staff of, of Aaron, denoting him as the one to take care of the tabernacle, his tribe. Just like it was no accident that God instructed Moses to use pure gold, it's no accident that God instructed Moses to incorporate the almond blossom in the design of the golden lampstand. In fact... Almond blossoms hold a great deal of meaning to the Israelites. See, the Hebrew, Hebrew language, the name for the almond, is, the almond tree is shockade. And the primary root of the word shockade is to be watchful, to be alert, or sleepless. So in the use of the almond blossoms and the buds in the design of the lampstand, would have at least symbolized at least two things to the Israelites. First to them, it would have said... God is constantly watching over his people. It would have showed them that their God is constantly watching over them. Secondly, it would have been a warning to the Israelites to be alert. Be watchful. Follow my commands and don't let anything take your focus away from me. The association between the almond tree and the watchfulness of God can be seen in other places in the Bible. If you look on your verse sheet, Jeremiah 1, 11 through 12, God is talking to Jeremiah, and he's saying, before you were even in your mother's womb, I had already consecrated you as a prophet of Israel or a prophet to the nations. And then Jeremiah says this, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. And the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Again, the almond branch symbolizing God's watchfulness. So God wasn't just designing this stunning piece of gold beauty in here, this lampstand. By using the symbolism of the almond tree in the tabernacle, he provided a visual reassurance and a visual kind of uh, warning or a caution to the Israelites. He reassured them, he said, I'm watching over you. I'm going to care for you. And then he's cautioning him, saying, remain alert. Don't let anything take your focus off of me or pull you away from me. Now, in Exodus 25, 37, Moses was instructed to make seven lamps, and they were to set on top of the lampstand. And I have a picture of some different kinds of lamps, um, if many will show those. We're not sure what they look like. It did say they were gold. If you go on to uh, Exodus 37, these would just be the shapes we're looking at. They could have been this or something like this that was kind of typical for the time. And they were to be turned inward um, to face the big of light inside. Um, flip ahead one page in your Bible. Let's look at Exodus 27 
And we're going to find out the instructions for the care of these lambs. I'm going to start at uh, verse 20. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the, temple of, in the tent of meeting, outside the veil that is before the testimony. Aaron and his sons shall tend to it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout the generations by the people of Israel. These lamps were to be filled with the highest quality, pure olive oil. And this olive oil was going to be brought to the temple by people to give as an, of an offering to, the, uh, to God. And Aaron and his sons were instructed to keep the wicks cut and to keep the lamps full of oil so that there would be this continuous light within the holy place. Now, I think it's really important to note something. In some translations, in some commentaries, I saw this called a candlestick. And it was not the case at all, I don't think. This was a lampstand. He very detailed told us this is a lampstand with lamps setting on top of each shaft of the lampstand. See, like the use of the almond blossom in the design of the lampstand, I think the use of a lamp and lampstand, lamps and a lampstand, is, has, holds great meaning to us. And this is why I think that. Think about this. A candle produces light just like a lamp, but in the process of producing light, it consumes itself as it burns, and it kind of starts to disappear. And what happens? If eventually, if you leave them on around your table very long, they burn down, they burn out, and they leave this puddle of wax on your table. And they go out. But a lamp, when it's filled with oil, it can continue to produce light over and over if you continuously and purposely keep it full of oil, and you keep the wick trimmed and cared for. So I think it's a fitting illustration of us and our daily walk with God. See, when we try to accomplish much, even if it's for kingdom causes, even if it's for all good stuff, and we try to do all of it on our own power, our own strength, our own endurance, our own wisdom, rarely filling up on God's word because we're too busy doing his work, or rarely including God in the details of, his, of our work, or rarely relying on the Holy Spirit to guide us as we work, we eventually burn out. And then because of it, we have got nothing else to, get, else to give. We've gotten too busy to spend time with God. And how do I know this? Because I've done it. I know that all of you have probably done it too. I've done it more than once. I'll get busy doing what I think is what God really wants me to do, and I'm busy doing it, and I forget, oh, I'm supposed to spend time with him. And I'm tired. I'm worn out. He wants me to rely on the Holy Spirit. He, he designed this lampstand, I think, to tell me that he wants me to continually fill myself with his word. He wants me to rely on the Holy Spirit to replenish my strength, and he, wants me to, and he wants the Holy Spirit to guide me as I study God's Word. And he wants me to continually turn to him in prayer as I hammer out the details of my daily work, both work for the kingdom and just work in our homes. Now, on a very quick side note, before we move on to the table of showbread, I read something about the Holy Spirit and oil, and we talked about that connection this week. It said that the Holy Spirit is the oil of light, causing our lamp to burn always. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no light, and with the Holy Spirit, there is no darkness. 
And I thought that was a great quote for what we're looking at here. This golden lampstand was truly a vision to behold, and it seems that every single square inch of it, however big or how many inches that is, was symbolic to the Israelites. See, it's also symbolic to all of us as well, as it points us to Christ. Look what's recorded on your verse sheet in John 8 concerning Jesus and light. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To the Israelites, the golden lampstand was a symbol of God's watchfulness over his chosen people and his direction, his direction that his light provided them as they did his work. And today for us as followers of Christ, it's a symbol of Christ, the light of the world, the very one who came to give us true life. Now let's move along to the next object in the holy place. It's the table of showbread, which is also known as, depending on your Bible translation, you could see bread of the presence, uh, bread of presence, or table for the bread, all the same thing. Follow along, and I'm going to read um, Exodus 25, 23 through 30, and we'll get the instructions for the building of the table of showbread. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall it be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it, and you shall make a rim around it, a hand, a hand breadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings, you shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Okay, I have a, ta- a picture of the table. If Mindy will show that. Now, we don't have, I didn't show you a back, a far away picture of it, because I think you kind of get the idea. But this is, showed a good picture of what was on top of the table. It would have looked something like this. Um, It was about three feet long, a foot and a half wide, and slightly over two feet tall. So when you think table, think coffee table, not dining table like the ones we have for dinner and sit around with with our kids. Think coffee table. This table, like the ark, was crafted out of acacia wood and covered with gold. Now, some of your translations use other names for this wood. Every one of them are the same thing. It's acacia wood. Uh, Now, there are two main reasons why they would have used this particular wood, and it was so widely used throughout the construction of the temple, or the tabernacle. First of all, the acacia tree was very plentiful, especially in this area in the wilderness, and so they would have had plenty of it to use. Secondly, there's an interesting fact about acacia wood that makes it the perfect wood for this. Most trees, when they are growing, they produce, all, all trees, when they're growing, produce a waste product. And those waste products, the tree will naturally push those things outside the tree. This wood is different. The acacia wood, as it grows, instead of pushing the, the waste products out of it, it actually deposits it back into the center, into its heartwood. Now, the heartwood is what insects like to eat. And so on other trees, insects will bore in through the wood and they'll get to the heartwood and they'll eat. That's what they want. And they leave these holes in the wood, making it easy for moisture to get in. But they don't like acacia wood 
Because all the waste products are inside the heartwood, and it doesn't taste good to them. So insects don't bore into this. And guess what? It leaves this wood complete, and it's dense, and it's, and it's almost in, in, and you can't penetrate it with moisture or with decay or anything. So it's almost incorruptible. It made it the perfect wood for the tabernacle and for the table of showbread. Now, on a side note, acacia wood is also very fragrant and very attractive. I got to see a piece of it. It's also very light, which I thought was interesting. I read a quote, though, about acacia wood being used as furniture to make furniture, and I thought this was interesting, and I want you to tuck this away in the back of your mind because we're going to revisit it later, but listen to this. It said, if you're looking for furniture that is beautiful as well as strong, acacia wood furniture will definitely meet your needs. And then it goes on to say, if you take the time to truly examine the wood, you will be amazed by the beauty of the wood grain and the strength of the wood. And as you examine this wood, you will begin to realize the true value of your furniture. Think about that, and we're going to come back to it in just a little bit. This wood reminds us of our Savior's humanity. And the gold that laid over the wood reminds us of, God, of Jesus' deity, both fully God, fully man, bore our sins to the cross, another place that we actually see wood speaking of Christ's humanity. Look at 1 Peter 2, 14, or 24 in your verse sheet. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Christ, fully God, fully man, died a criminal's death on a wooden cross. Again, Christ in his humanity. And I mentioned earlier, overlaid with gold meant represented Christ's deity. Look at Colossians 2.8. It says, for in him, this is Paul, he's speaking to the Colossians. He says, for him, the wholeness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's Jesus is God with skin. He was the word made flesh. And that's why we see here symbolically with this table. It's the table of the showbread. It's Jesus. Now, just like the Ark of the Covenant, there were golden rings on the corners and acacia wood poles, and they were used to carry this table of showbread when they moved about in the wilderness. To the Israelites, this table represented God's desire to fellowship with his people. For us, it symbolizes a new covenant, a covenant with Christ, the covenant through which Christ made it possible for us to fellowship with God. But as symbolic as this table was to the Israelites, what the table held was even more symbolic. And we saw the picture of it earlier. On top of that, there were to be 12 loaves of bread, and there were these round, flat, relatively flat loaves of bread, and they were to be stacked on the table. This bread is called the show bread, or some of your translations may say bread of the presence. But this bread was a very special bread, and it was to be on the, on the tabernacle at all times, on the table of show bread in the tabernacle, and later on they would continue it in the temple. Look at Leviticus 24 on your verse sheet, and this gives us the details of this bread and how it's cared for. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile on the table of gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial proportion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. 
It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. These verses in Leviticus tell us that the Levitical priest were to very specifically make and prepare this showbread. The priests were to, to, make, the priests were to make 12 loaves of bread, and they were to place them in two stacks of six. Six loaves. Now, these loaves most likely represented to them the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's what most biblical scholars believe, and I'll tell you why. The Hebrew word for showbread is a combination of two words, which are way too hard to pronounce, so I'm not going to. So trust me on this. But the words used mean bread of faces. Or, simply put, face bread. Because of this, scholars believe that the bread always present on this table served as a reminder that every tribe was represented. Every tribe and every person in that tribe was represented, had a role in God's family. And that they had a seat at the table as the priest represented them in the temple, in the holy place. Now, the old bread was replaced with new, and it was on the seventh day, the Sabbath, and then it was eaten by the priest in a holy place, it said. The continual presence of this bread on the table reminded them of God's continual provision of them. Way before, as he provided manna and, and delivery from Egypt, all the things he's provided for them, and that he's going to continue to provide for them. For the Israelites, a table of showbread, the bread of presence, symbolized the fellowship of God desired to have with them. And this is not the first time that God showed his desire to fellowship with his people. Do you remember back, just one chapter back, and I think I've put this on your verse sheet, Exodus 24. Um, there was a time back, just one chapter before, when uh, Moses was heading up onto the mountain. It says, Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the seventy of the elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. These 74 men ate and drank with God, and they lived to tell about it. That is amazing evidence to me that our Heavenly Father desires more than anything to fellowship with His people. He's not just wanting to just rule over us and just be this God of wrath or God of, you know, that rules, sits on His throne and looks over us. He desires this deep relationship with each one of us. The bread of the table of showbread has another meaning for us today. Look at John 6, 35 in your verse sheet. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, like bread, Christ gives and Christ sustains life. He is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with his people. He is the reason we can have that fellowship and that relationship with the holy God at all. And look at the verse, at your verse sheet, to see what's recorded in Matthew concerning this new covenant. Matthew 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given, it, given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it all, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. 
It sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's Holy Communion. When we participate in Holy Communion, we're celebrating Christ's fulfillment of God's covenant with his people. Christ is our new covenant with a holy God, and now he is our high priest. He is our mediator representing us to a holy God. Now, the last thing to note here is what's placed on top of the bread, on the table of showbread. It's frankincense. And it was to be placed on the tap, one on each stack, like showed in the picture. Frankincense is the product of, of a particular tree, and I thought it had a very clever name, the tree of frankincense. So it's easy to remember. If you're ever looking to buy one, that's the name of it. And what it does is when you make a cut in this, an incision into the tree, it oozes this gum out. And, and when that hardens, you can shave that down or grind it down, and it's this white powdery stuff. And when that white powder, which is what it was used in the, temp, the tabernacle and later in the temple, it's this white powder that burns very easily, it's very bitter, so they didn't want to eat it, but it burned very easily. And when it burns, it makes this beautiful white smoke, and it smells amazing. It was very fragrant. And so this smell would have just been constantly in the, tab in the holy place of the tabernacle. Frankincense is often referred to in the Bible to symbolize intercession and worship. Frankincense was placed on top of each stack of bread as a pleasing aroma of God, to God as the priest representing the 12 tribes of Israel worshipped him and made intercession for those, each person in, the, in each tribe. So the Israelites, to them, this frankincense burned on top of each stack of the showbread, it re representing the 12 tribes. It would symbolize them giving up their life as an act of worship, and doing so, and in doing so, that their lives would be this pleasing aroma to God, and it would make him smile. For us, the use of frankincense is the reminder of Christ, our high priest. He's the one that laid down his life as the ultimate sacrifice, the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And now he sits at the right hand of God, interceding for us, and that sacrifice was an act of worship and it was a pleasing aroma to his father. And it reminds us that he's there at the right hand of his father now, interceding for us. He represents us before God now, just like the high priest represented each tribe of Israel. Now, on a side note, as I was researching a little bit, frankincense in particular, I came across something interesting. Some of you may already know this, but I thought it was worth noting. Remember when the wise men brought their gifts, they brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Apparently, these gifts were not by accident. I know, there wasn't like a sale at the essential oil store, or they found them on the way, and that's all they had in the gift closet. As it turns out, they're very symbolic. It says the gold, the gift of gold to the Christ child was symbolic of his deity. This, this child was God in the flesh. The gift of frankincense to the Christ child was symbolic of, of this child's willingness that he was going to have to become a sacrifice and wholly give himself up, and he would become our intercessor later. And myrrh symbolized bitterness, suffering, and affliction because this baby Jesus would grow to suffer greatly as a man as he paid the ultimate price for all of our sins. Look at Hebrews 9.12 on your verse sheet. 
says, he, speaking of Jesus, entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ became our high priest. To the Israelites, the table of showbread was a symbol of God's provision and fellowship. And today, the table of showbread is a symbol of Christ, the bread of life, who came as a new covenant to give us true life. When we look at these two objects together in the holy place, we see that the Israelites, these two things together, would show them that God was watching over them. He was guiding them, he was providing for them, and he wanted to fellowship with them. And he made it possible inside this place, the holy place within the tabernacle. For us, the golden lampstand and the table of showbread symbolize that God watches over us. He guides us through his Holy Spirit. He provides for us daily, not just physically, but spiritually. And God is able... And God is, desires to fellowship with us just like he did with the Israelites. But instead of making that possible for us through a tabernacle, he made it possible through Jesus Christ. He died in our place, took our sins, washed our sin away, and now our holy God is able to dwell within us. We become, our hearts become God's tabernacle, God's home on earth. Now, because of time restraints, I wasn't able to go into chapters uh, 37 to show you how they carried out these instructions, but I think you did it as you did your questions, and I think you saw that they carried it out completely, which I think has a great lesson for all of us. We can enjoy fabulous, fabulous relationship and deep, intimate fellowship with God when we follow his commands. It only makes our time with him even more rich. But what else can we learn from our tour through the holy place? First of all, I think God provides for our daily needs. I know that he does. And he's provided for us ultimately through Jesus. He's the, he's the bread of life. And John 6, 5, uh, 6, 57 on your verse sheet says, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Secondly, it tells us that God's great name is glorified when we allow the light of Christ to shine through us. That's what we've been called to do. Look at Matthew 5, 16. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Just like in the holy place within the tabernacle, God, our heavenly Father, shines his light on his Son, Jesus, the showbread, and he does so by way of the Holy Spirit who shines his light and reveals Christ to us in his holy scriptures. And we are to shine our light before others as we love and serve a lost world. Not to raise up ourselves at all, but why? To glorify God's great name. See, if you're in Christ, guess what? God's already shined his light into your life. And you've met the showbread face to face. And I know if you've done that, you'll agree with me. He is a sight to behold. Remember I read that quote to you. I want to read it again. And I made some edits. The quote I read you about the acacia wood furniture. And I made some edits. If you're looking for a savior that is beautiful as well as strong, Jesus Christ will definitely meet your needs. 
If you take the time to truly examine God's word, you will be amazed by the beauty and strength of Christ. And then you will begin to realize the true value of your Savior. And you will fall deeper and deeper in love with him. My prayer for each one of you is that you allow the Holy Spirit to guide you deeply as as you dive deeply into examining his holy scriptures. And as you do that, I pray that you fall deeper and deeper in love with the light of your life, Jesus Christ. You and I can be a light to the world, but we're only able because of Jesus. He's the light of the world. Please pray with me. Precious Father, we thank you for the truth that you reveal to us in your word. Father, I pray that we never take that lightly and we spend time with you and in your word and you guide us. We pray that the Holy Spirit would lead us as we study your scriptures and that you continue to plant nuggets of truth within our hearts. We love you. We love your word. And in your son's name we pray. Amen.